0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> I'm Richard Morningstar. Uh, I'm the founding director and chairman of the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, which I'll explain in a moment the anomaly of me introducing uh, introducing the program today. I am a former US ambassador to the EU, among other things. And I'm, I'm delighted to welcome uh, all of you uh, to uh, the council today. Uh, I want to give a very special welcome uh, to our main speaker. There he is, Richard Berner, who is the director of the Office of Financial Research uh, at the Treasury Department. Uh, and Richard is uh, joining us today for our fifth event in the Power of Transparency series, uh, co-hosted uh, with uh, Thomson Thomson Reuters. But uh, I'm particularly happy uh, to be uh, welcoming Richard here today and the reason why I'm up here. Uh, Not only because of the timeliness of the event, uh, but we were, he's a good friend, and we were high school classmates uh, at uh, Brookline High School, (coughs) Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, in the class of 1963, which, if you're counting, uh, will be. Uh, 54 years ago <clears throat> this coming spring. Now, I know neither of us look like we could possibly be that old, uh, but uh, um, in, in, in fact, we are. Uh, not only are we friends, but our, our parents were very good friends uh, as well, and uh, we uh, both got to know each other's parents uh, quite well um, over, over the years. Uh, I'd also like to give a a very warm welcome to the two people who are the brains behind this operation. Andrea Montanino, who's uh, the director of our global uh, business and energy program, Uh, and uh, Marie Kasparek, who's maybe outside of the room right now. She's working, who's uh, uh, put this together. Uh, I also want to give a very warm welcome to the Thomson Reuters team that's present today uh, and who've made this possible, and especially to Kate, uh, Kate Friedrich, uh, who's been instrumental in putting this series together. And we started uh, the Power of Transparency series last year uh, with the overall aim uh, to better inform Key audiences about how transparency helps U.S. agencies and the government in general uh, to achieve uh, achieve more economic growth. And so today, we'll evaluate the current state uh, of the financial system, the challenges ahead, uh, and the role uh, of transparency and new and emerging and what new and emerging technologies can play in making the financial system and the economy more resilient uh, to future to future shocks. <clears throat> it is quite amazing, if you were watching the news today, that uh, when you think about eight years ago or seven years ago, the Dow was down, got to as low as 6,000 and some, and it actually broke 20,000 today, uh, which uh, yeah, I don't know. You may want to comment on that and what, what all that means, but in any event, uh, it is uh, quite remarkable uh, when you think what has happened over the past uh, uh, over the past eight years. Uh, uh, this event is on the record, uh, and uh, so we I encourage you to actively partake in the Q and A at the end of the moderated discussion, and you can follow along via Twitter using the hashtag. Uh, pound sign, power of transparency. Uh, before I hand over the floor, uh, I want to announce that on February 8th, th- th- there'll be the last of our speaker series on the, uh, on transparency. And that's going to feature <coughs> Christine Lagarde. Uh, and that will obviously be uh, uh, an important session. And I hope that you will come. Uh, with uh, that being said uh well actually just one quick thing on richard before handing it over to tim baker one thing that i learned today on, <clears throat> with respect to the uh, office of financial research i said to richard dick as i knew him then uh i said gee thursday must have been your last day you know you're a presidential appointee uh senate confirmed uh and uh, What's it like to be unemployed? He said, "How wrong you are!" Uh, that, uh, that his position—it's it's a term appointment, uh, so he does have two more years uh, in this role. Now we did have a brief discussion on whether or not that—that—that that, that he is serving at the, uh, you know, the, at the will of the president or not, but. Uh, that may be something that comes up in the next uh, uh, in the next several months, but uh, this position does have a term uh, until what January of 2019, I take. Uh, Okay, now, having spoken too much, uh, I will uh, hand it over to Tim Baker, the global head of new content initiatives uh, at Thomson Reuters. Uh, and in this capacity, he provides the strategic direction across the large portfolio of assets and is also involved in innovation and new uh, new business development. And prior to that, um, uh, uh, Tim was the managing director at UBS, where he occupied a variety of analytical and supervisory positions, and his current and previous role and responsibilities make him, make him the perfect person to set the stage for today's discussion, and so I'll turn it over to Mr. Baker, who will also introduce our other participant uh, uh, later.
1: Thank you, Dick. Um, I'd like to thank you all for taking uh, the time to join us and getting around the, uh, the activities outside. Uh, it's my honor to be here at the uh, Atlantic Council for the fifth installment of the Power of Transparency speaker series. Today, we welcome director, the uh, director of the Office of Financial Research, uh, Dr. Richard Berner, uh, for what we believe will be a great discussion. I'm looking forward to that. Today's discussion entitled The Power of Transparency in Preventing Future Financial Crises is crucially important. The Office of Financial Research, or the OFR, is at the heart of this topic and is tasked with promoting financial stability by looking across the financial system to measure and analyze risks, perform essential research, and collect and standardize financial data. The OFR strives to shine a light in the dark corners of the financial system to see where risks are going, to assess how much of a threat they might pose, and to provide policymakers with financial analysis information and evaluation of policy tools to mitigate them. We at Thomson Reuters have been a leader in addressing many of the same challenges. Over the years, we've we've developed systems and processes ourselves to standardize and clean financial uh, data so that they're truly globally comparable while helping investors surface hidden risks, potentially buried deep in the footnotes of financial disclosures and other types of filings. In fact, our activities are aligned to many other departments of the federal government. For example, we track the stock trading activity of insiders, not to detect detect where they have traded, where individuals have traded ahead of uh, perhaps the release of material, non-public information. We leave that to the FBI but to help investors develop predictive analytics based on the behavior of those uh, insiders, officers and directors of the companies. We then use advanced natural language processing systems and thousands of content analysts to curate this and thousands of other data sources and have been doing this for tens of years. For example, our WorldCheck product collects and databases, sanctions on millions of people and companies and millions of companies in over 100 countries. And the byproduct of all of this activity is probably the world's largest database of linkages between companies, people, securities, and events, over 30 billion connections. And our powerful big data analytics systems then allow us to identify hidden risk, hidden relationships. In a similar way that the NSA does with our own information, but this is based on publicly available filings. So put another way, transparency gets us so far, but there is an awful lot of work that then goes into converting that into actionable insight, and that's what Thomson Reuters does. Our open platform is increasingly allow us to engage with a vast array of fintech startups. They're very dynamic. They're using our data to create new insight themselves. For example, we have hundreds of companies using our free version of our natural language processing system called Thomson Reuters Intelligent Tagging. They're also leveraging our own open identifier, similar to the LEI. Some of you in the room might have been assigned a perm ID. That's what we call our identifier, if you were the subject of a public filing, or perhaps if you're in WorldCheck. Perhaps our discussion today will touch on some of these issues, and I uh, look forward to introducing the two speakers. I'd first like to acknowledge our moderator today, Gina Chan, Washington columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. I'm a Breaking Views uh, fan, I read it every day, I encourage all of you to do the same. Gina joined Breaking Views in 2016 from the Financial Times where she was the enforcement and regulatory correspondent in Washington, most recently focused on white collar crime and cybersecurity. Before that Gina was the corporate reporter for Quartz and spent 7 years at the Wall Street Journal in New York, Baghdad and Detroit covering M&A, war and automotive, I assume in that order. <laughs> Before we get the discussion started I would like to introduce our distinguished guest. Dr Richard Burner was confirmed as the first director of the Office of Financial Research in 2013. Prior to his confirmation as OFR director, Dr. Berner Berner served as counselor to the secretary of the treasury with the responsibility for standing up the office of financial research. Before joining the treasury in April 2011, he was co-head of global economics at Morgan Stanley. Prior to that, he served as chief economist at Mellon Bank and as a member of Mellon's senior management committee and was also a senior member of the Mellon's uh, senior management committee. Previously, he served as a senior economist for Morgan Stanley, Salomon Brothers, and Morgan Guarantee Trust Company, and was director of the Washington D.C. Office of Walton Econometrics, and on the research staff of the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. He also was an adjunct professor of economics at Carnegie Mellon University and George Washington University. Dr Burnett has won forecasting awards from Blue Chip Economic Indicators, the Wall Street Journal, Market News and the National Association for Business and Economics. He was also awarded the 2007 William Butner Award for excellence in business and economics. I know we're all eager to hear from him today, so without further ado, I'll hand it over to the director.
2: Tim and Dick, thank you so much for that kind introduction. I am truly delighted and honored to be here with all of you today, uh, and thank you for the invitation. Dick, since we went to high school together, I would only ask what took you so long? (laughs) Thanks also to the Atlantic Council and Thomson Reuters for inviting me here to join the distinguished speakers in this Power of Transparency series. My topic, the power of transparency in promoting financial stability, is really squarely in our wheelhouse at the OFR. We help to promote financial stability by delivering high-quality financial data and analysis for the benefit of policymakers on the Financial Stability Oversight Council and the public. As the program for today's uh, event noted, and as uh, Dick and Tim both noted, we shine a light into the dark corners of our financial system. In other words, we exercise the power of transparency. Now, transparency enables understanding. It helps reveal what we did not know. And the financial crisis of 2007 uh, through 2009 was devastating for most Americans and for our economy. Although we can't predict or prevent financial crises, many are now asking, are we safer? Are we better equipped now to face a future financial crisis? And my answer is absolutely yes, but we still have a lot more work to do. In the years since the crisis, federal financial regulators have taken important steps to make the U.S. financial system more resilient. They put in place banks' new capital requirements, and they've agreed on key components of liquidity regulation and minimum requirements for firms' holdings of liquid assets. In addition, stress testing and a new regime to resolve large, complex, and troubled financial institutions in an orderly way have both dramatically changed the approach to increasing resilience. We've also made major strides in improving financial data. Good data are essential for making good policy decisions and for managing financial risks. Requiring financial firms to report their activities creates transparency and that promotes price discovery and efficient markets. High quality data result in transparency so all users can understand what the data represent. That's where I want to focus this afternoon on improving the quality, the scope, and accessibility of financial data. Each of those is part of the OFR mission, and they are essential for transparency in the financial system. Just having one or two won't suffice. All three are required, like the legs of a three-legged stool. Let's first discuss data quality. The collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008 taught us all a lesson about the importance of data quality. When Lehman failed, financial regulators and Lehman's counterparties were unable to assess many individual exposures to this failing firm. No industry-wide standards existed for identifying parties to financial transactions. So many market participants were exposed to Lehman through its subsidiaries without knowing it. If only knowledge of those exposures had existed prior to the Lehman failure, well, now we have a solution. The Global Legal Entity Identifier System, or LEI, which is like a barcode for precisely identifying parties to financial transactions. It's a cornerstone for financial data standards, and Tim alluded to that in his introduction. A half a million LEIs are already in use, but more progress is needed towards universal adoption and the full benefits that we expect to flow from it. We played a major role in launching the public-private partnership that created the LEI system and we prodded regulators to require broader use of the LEI in regulatory reporting to solve the collective action problem that stymies adoption. Authorities in Europe have required it, but our fellow U.S. regulators have been slower to respond. They need to step up and do more. Precise identification of financial products and instruments is also essential for data quality. That's why we have a statutory mandate to develop a financial instrument reference database. That's an authoritative source of data describing financial instruments. With it, anyone could check whether a particular financial instrument is a close substitute for another, like looking up your family tree online. The database will help firms more systematically understand, aggregate, and manage their risks across their portfolios. Likewise, it will help officials promote financial stability by helping them understand, aggregate, and assess risks across the financial system. Soon the OFR will publish a paper outlining our proposed approach to establishing this database. That brings me to the second leg of the stool, data scope. To analyze threats to financial stability, we need data that are both comprehensive and detailed. Although we've made progress, gaps persist in financial data, and it's our job to fill them. One key gap that we're trying to fill involves short-term funding markets, specifically data describing markets for bilateral repurchase agreements, or REPO, and securities lending transactions. These markets are instrumental in providing the funding and liquidity that are the lifeblood of the global financial system. The U.S. REPO market provides more than $3 trillion in funding every day to securities dealers and many others. But its vulnerability to runs and fire sales poses potential threats to financial stability. The OFR has collaborated with the Federal Reserve and the Securities and Exchange Commission to conduct two voluntary pilot projects to explore how best to collect those data. We plan to build on the pilot soon with a rulemaking to launch ongoing data collections. We'll make the resulting data available to federal financial regulators and in aggregated form to the public. The data might also be useful in developing a secured funding rate as an alternative to LIBOR. LIBOR, formerly the London Interbank Offered Rate, is an interest rate benchmark used to price borrowing rates on major consumer purchases, such as homes and cars, and for $150 trillion in derivative transactions. Attempted manipulation of LIBOR during the financial crisis and ongoing doubts about LIBOR's reliability prompted the OFR and the Federal Reserve to work with other agencies and market participants to devise a reliable, widely accepted, and transparent alternative. That work is continuing in the new year. The third leg of the stool is about data access. To make key data more accessible, we must both overcome obstacles to the appropriate sharing of data and ensure the protection of confidential information. The financial system is global, so challenges to data sharing know no borders. The challenges involved restrictions on sharing proprietary data, the need to protect personal and market-sensitive information, and legal constraints that differ among and across jurisdictions. Even sharing data with member agencies of the Financial Stability Oversight Council can be difficult. Agencies with mandates to collect data from industry for oversight purposes might lack the authority to share those data, even with the OFR. We're taking several approaches to overcoming those obstacles. For example, we've signed more than 50 memorandums of understanding, or MOUs, with federal, state, and overseas regulators to facilitate data sharing. These agreements include MOUs with state supervisors for insurance industry data, the Securities and Exchange Commission for confidential data about private funds, and the Federal Reserve for data on stress testing, and our global counterparts for a variety of other data. We're also working with federal financial regulators to develop best practices and a set of common MOU provisions to streamline the process. To facilitate data access, we're also working with regulators in the United States and overseas to build and link catalogs of metadata, or data about data, for transparency among regulators about what data exists and to identify data gaps. Well, those are just a few examples of how the OFR is exercising the power of transparency to promote financial stability by improving the quality, the scope, and the accessibility of financial data. Thanks for your attention today, and I'll be happy to answer your questions.
3: Thank you uh, for everyone for showing up here today and to Director Berner, um, especially on this beautiful day and the crane drama going on outside. You still decided to come in, so I appreciate that. Um, So uh, Director Berner gave a a pretty good overview of how the OFR um, has transparency as one of its focal points of its work. Obviously, it was uh, created out of um, what we learned from the financial crisis and the broader uh, regulatory reforms that occurred afterwards. So I guess I just wanted to start off, and, Director Berner, you uh, you touched upon this in your opening remarks, but especially for people who may not be as familiar with OFR, can you just talk about how you decide what to focus on, given how broad your mandate is and how uh, vast sort of the, the space you uh, can look at, um, how you sort of decide what to research, what to set up for monitors, and then how you work with other regulators. And I guess as part of that, what you, what you also don't do, because I think there might be um, some perceptions around that, that um, may not be as, as accurate.
2: Great. Well, thanks, Gina. I think there are at least three questions there. So yeah. <laughs> I'll try to answer them in turn. Um, so first, how do we decide what to focus on? And my answer, the short answer would be this is really a team sport and a team effort. And that's why the Financial Stability Oversight Council was created to get all the regulators together uh, so that they could uh, decide on what the, uh, the key vulnerabilities in the financial system looked like Um, and or at least to hypothesize about what they looked like. Uh, And then to use our work and theirs uh, to decide whether or not they really were uh, important. And it's up to the council, and this speaks to your third question, Mm -hmm. it's up to the council to take action, decide what to do about it. And those things are really important. But our job is really to inform the work of uh, the council who makes those decisions um, to get the data, uh, and to fill in the gaps where others uh, might not have information, uh, and to do the analysis, uh, again, filling in the gaps, or to collaborate with the others uh, to focus on uh, answering those questions and to come up with uh, you know the answers that not everybody necessarily will like, but which obviously are aimed at leading us to the, to the right answers. Um, it's hard to say how we prioritize Uh, Threats to financial stability, some of them are are obvious. Uh, I think in the crisis, uh, as I alluded to in my remarks, we saw that there were runs on uh, a variety of short-term wholesale financing vehicles. Um, And we had no tools, really, to uh, address that particular problem. We had no tools at the time specifically to make money market mutual funds uh, more resilient. Uh, and clearly they were vulnerable uh, to runs in the, in the crisis. So when we started looking at some of those problems, we knew that we needed to fix those, and the council has taken steps to fix those. And then as we dig deeper, we start, we keep uncovering uh, other things, uh, and we have to decide how consequential they are, and whether or not they really do represent a threat to the financial system, uh, or that they're just risks that need to be managed by individual financial institutions. And that's a matter of data, analysis, judgment, and experience.
3: Great. Well, I try not to ask this as my first question, but um, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, bring this up. Um, So how do you see uh, OFR's role perhaps changing or or not changing with the new administration? Um, Do you see any uh, possible sort of revisions that could occur? Um, you mentioned FSOC. Uh, if there are changes there, does, how do, would that affect OFR? Do, do you have a sense of that yet, realizing it's you know, er, early days?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think you just answered the question. I think it's too <laughs> soon to tell. Uh, but I, what I would say is uh, you know, our mission is unchanged. Uh, our vision for a transparent and uh, strong financial system is unchanged. Uh, you know, and I would expect that uh, both the administration and the members of the council share that vision, and so we're all still pulling in the same direction.
3: Okay. Have you gotten any indication yet, or, or is that still sort of in, in process?
2: Well, as you're aware, there's a transition process, and uh, when that process was underway following the election, uh, we uh, answered questions. We supplied the transition team with uh, information. More recently, we've met uh, you know, with some uh, of the incoming folks, uh, but it's early days, and um, we'll see how that evolves.
3: Yeah, I guess they also need to get a treasury secretary and some other people in in place as well. So, uh, I wanted to sort of touch upon uh, speaking of sort of politics and the political environment. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, whether it's here in the U.S. or or overseas. Um, We've seen uh, the vote in the U.K. with Brexit um, still being worked out of the mechanics of that. Uh, there's other elections um, in the EU this year um, that people are closely watching. So in terms of systemic risks and sort of the data and and sort of factors that you're looking at, how are you kind of distinguishing you know, what you need to keep your eye on and what's you know, sort of things that, as you say, maybe are are not really for uh, OFR, for regulators to manage, because it is more um, up to uh, uh, politics and and other factors.
2: Well, I think the answer is to focus on, uh, first, getting the facts. And if the facts don't exist, if the data don't exist, we identify a data gap to try to identify them. Second, um, our work depends on, uh, as does the work of other members of the council on, Talking to market participants because, after all, to understand what's going on in the financial system, we need to gather market intelligence. We need to understand the perspective of the industry and how they're looking at uh, at things, um, and uh, you know, to make judgments about uh, whether or not we need to do more work on those things uh, or not. But it really does start with the facts.
3: Yeah, well, with um, with the data that could possibly uh, be relevant to some of these um factors and the uncertainties are are there things that you are um actually looking for i mean does it matter if certain financial institutions move from london to elsewhere in terms of your actual work or that's not perhaps quite in terms of systemic risk or or risk to the financial markets
2: Um, the answer is it's not yet clear but we're thinking about those things so for example in our a uh, financial stability report In our annual report, we talked about four themes, one of which was uh, that from a macro perspective, we thought that most of the sources of risk would come from developments overseas outside our borders uh, and some from Europe. And so uh, to the extent that those things become more uncertain, that's something that we, we think about and we watch closely, to the extent that um, we see changes in business models Uh, as they affect the functioning of the financial system, uh, either because of the factors that you mentioned or some other factors which are important. Those are things that we try to focus on to understand what their implications are for how the system is functioning and where it might be going.
3: Sure, Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, in your remarks the quality of data and uh, possible data gaps. What are some of the areas that you see are are still things that perhaps regulators and policymakers don't know enough about? Um, You mentioned LIBOR, which is uh, obviously will be of great interest of what ends up being the alternative, what replaces that. Um, And also, in terms of the data gaps, I think people think OFR, it's just about researching sort of the industry or markets, but you also look at uh, the regulators themselves in terms of some of their work, like the uh, Federal Reserve and the CCAR, the stress test process. Um, what are some of the areas that you think are, are still lacking that, uh, that you think are, you know, of, of focus that, sh- that should be relied on?
2: So in terms of the data uh, gaps, uh, one that I talked about in my remarks was in short-term wholesale funding. Repo and securities lending are two kinds of transactions uh, in what I refer to as securities financing transactions. Um, Those are important gaps that uh, we think need to be filled because they did uh, represent threats in the the crisis, and we still think that there's vulnerability there. And all the regulators uh, agree with us and are very supportive uh, of filling. Uh, that gap, but there are others. And one of the things that we do in order to try to uncover those gaps is we try to essentially be cartographers. We try to map out what the financial system looks like so we can understand the pieces and how they fit together. Because our work focuses on really the the system as a whole Mm -hmm. and its functioning, how shocks in one part of the system might affect other parts, how they might amplify a shock in one part as it gets transmitted to the other parts. So those maps are helping us do that. Uh, One area where there's uh, work to be done is in what we call the Payments Clearing and Settlement System, what some people refer to as the plumbing of the financial system. Um, And we know a lot more now about how that functions, uh, but it's constantly changing. Tim and uh, his comments talked about how uh, new technologies are, are changing some of the financial market and financial system functioning. And this is an area where there's likely to be innovation with new technologies, whether it's from what's called distributed ledger technologies, which relates to blockchain, uh, or others that may change the functioning of the system. Some of them may be beneficial in reducing risk. Some of them may create new risks. Those are the kinds of things that we need to find out. And then in terms of evaluating what policymakers do, uh, I think all of us are humble enough to understand that you know when policy choices are made, um, they represent trade-offs. You know, there are some things over here that are good, and there's some things over here that might not be so good. And you know the trade-offs involved obviously try to tilt in the direction of benefits as opposed to things that are not so good. But if there are unintended consequences from certain policy choices, then it's our job to try to smoke those out and to report on them and see what might be done in, uh, about them. We do have a mandate to evaluate, uh, as you mentioned, uh, stress testing, uh, CCAR in particular and other kinds of stress testing uh, in general, because CCAR is something that applies to our largest bank holding companies. Um, but there are other institutions where stress testing is either being used or about to be used. And just how that we should go you know, pursuing that uh, what information we need to do that? Um, what kind of process should be involved? Where to draw the line and how detailed that process should be? Balancing the risks against the you know the burden of the process? those are all questions that we're trying to answer and evaluate.
3: And what's the uh, timeline on that because, there is, each year, the stress test sort of evolves. There's different factors right. that the Fed includes. Um, there's also changes to perhaps the way they even calculate certain capital measures mm-hmm. uh, that they've talked about. So do you see this as sort of an evolutionary process or, or sort of you know more looking at a one time <coughs> period or, or one test?
2: No, it's definitely evolutionary. Yeah. Um, Look, stress testing only really came into its own uh, in the crisis. It's not that institutions themselves weren't involved with it. When I was in the industry, regular stress testing was a part of risk management. Uh, But we've learned a lot over the past few years, and we'll continue to learn. And that makes it inherently evolutionary. Um, And I think that that means that there's a dialogue that goes on in the policy making and regulatory community. And we're part of that dialogue. By statute and also because people have come to us asking for advice. So we've already had some impact on the thinking of people who are doing the stress testing. Recently it was announced publicly that we have access now to the data that are used in the secar process. And that Which, will enable thanks us... Thanks with
3: love, by the way. <laughs> Lucky well, you. <laughs> uh,
2: and so our goal in getting access to those data is to evaluate the process, to evaluate the tests, seeing whether they are effective. Um, seeing whether there's that balance uh, in the test, seeing whether the granularity is something that's absolutely needed. Mm -hmm. We don't presume, we don't have any presumption uh, to begin with, Uh, but, um, you know, I think we've already seen some changes uh, in the stress testing uh, process and methodology, and I think there's a recognition by regulators that we should not have a one-size-fits-all approach to stress testing or to other kinds of regulatory measures that... You know, it should be um, geared to the risk in the institution, um, or to the parts of the system that uh, that it covers. Uh, so, if you have a small, relatively simple financial institution, you treat them differently from the way you would treat a large, complex, interconnected institution.
3: Mm-hmm. And what about uh, data gaps or or things that you would hope to see um, in terms of? The global financial system obviously uh, our markets are pretty interconnected. Um, we have financial institutions that operate in um, pretty much in every country uh, mm-hmm. in the world. Um, the Europeans they have their own stress tests, but it's you know obviously different standards. But it could also affect the balance sheet or or other um, decisions that banks make that also operate here. Are there also efforts to possibly work with other regulators uh, across the globe on some of these data issues?
2: Yeah, we do, in fact. And I mentioned that we have MOUs with a variety of overseas counterparts. uh, And we engage with them uh, on a regular basis to talk about issues uh, in common. So I'll give you a couple of examples on the data front. Um, on the data standards front, the ECB, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of England, and we uh, have sponsored two workshops on uh, what we call setting standards, uh, global standards for granular data, which addresses the issue that you're talking about. We all speak different languages. We all have different laws, uh, but we all are dealing with financial transactions that are, if not identical, they're similar in nature, and where the risk we think across borders is something we need to identify and to to track and to manage. Um, They recognize that. We recognize that. So having standards that span the globe, we think, are pretty important. And there are a lot of global initiatives that we're involved with. Uh, We're going to have a third workshop with the ECB and the Bank of England uh, at the end of March uh, to continue this work. Uh, And the work is really starting to bear fruit in the way that people think about these issues. Um, and in the way that we really go after them.
3: And what about uh, privacy issues, especially if you are dealing with um, counterparts in the EU or or elsewhere that might have stricter rules on Mm -hmm. that, especially given the topic today of transparency, you know, sort of the the push and pull of that.
2: Right. Well, that tension is something that I talked about as needing to find a balance on. um, it really uh, it, it's really one of the biggest challenges we face because there's nothing more sacred to us than this the security and the confidentiality of the data that are entrusted to us we don't generally focus on um, personal information but if data are confidential if they have a commercial value if they are uh, you know they have supervisory impact um, you know, we want to make sure that anybody who gives us those data or gives us access to those data you know, feels that we're keeping them as safe as they would. Um, so we've spent a lot of time uh, building procedures and protocols and technologies uh, that uh, align with theirs and to make sure that in our MOUs um, we restrict access to people who need to know. Um, not everybody who in the organization has access to certain kinds of data. Um, and we want organization X abroad or here at home to know who exactly has access to those data. And we have extensive protocols for authentication, for access, for use, um, making sure that, uh, the data are, uh, are kept safe and secure.
3: And you mentioned clearing houses as one area where perhaps you'd, you'd like to see more information on. Um, obviously, <coughs> with the crisis and the reforms, particularly when it comes to over-the-counter derivatives and, and clearing that came with that, um, there's been a lot of changes in the market. Um, do you have a sense of um, where that is, how that's going so far? Um, or is that something, as you said, that that you would like more information on? Because people obviously think that having more transparency in that market is obviously beneficial. But right. now, with some of the structures that have been created, there is a worry of concentration and and um, sort of the the power that sure. that has now over the market.
2: We shouldn't overlook <laughs> the benefits that uh, you know central clearing has for markets and sure. risk management. So. Uh, central clearing has one big benefit, which is if you net the transactions against each other, uh, then uh, you can manage your risk better. The reporting of data into uh, CCP's creates transparency, and that has benefits for risk management uh, and so on. But as you say, Gina, that creates a concentration of risk. And the question is, are the CCP's individually and collectively, because they are effectively a network Uh, of clearing houses? Do they have the wherewithal? Do they have the resilience to withstand shocks? And that's particularly important because if you have a large financial institution that is clearing its transactions through a few CCPs, and if that institution uh, becomes troubled or has some kind of distress, then the chances are it's not just going to affect one, but it may affect several CCPs. In addition, market participants may Look at trouble in one institution or in one CCP, and presume that there's going to be trouble in others, and with legitimate reasons. So for all those reasons, it's important to have uh, information. The good news is that there is more information now. We analyze some of the new data that's available for CCPs uh, in our uh, financial stability report that uh, was published just at the end of last year. But um, you know, that's a start and I think we need uh, more information in order to do a better job. The other piece of good news is that I think uh, regulators are starting to look at CCPs and understanding that they all create a network of uh, benefits and of risk, and so they're looking at them uh, in that way. Uh, The European Securities Markets Association, or ESMA, uh, has done some uh, system-wide stress testing and recently, the CFTC also did some back in November, Yeah. and that was discussed at one of the um, one of the council meetings. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, great. Well, in in terms of uh, how you also interact or not interact, perhaps with the uh, private sector, are are there ways that um, the industry can engage with OFR? Uh, you've put out reports on on various aspects and activities, uh, whether it's the asset management industry, or you're looking at a hedge fund monitor, are there ways to interact with them? Do you sort of invite them in? Can they come to you? How, how does that work with the industry players? Yeah,
2: it's a good question. I'm glad you asked it because our door is really always open uh, to industry and not only do we welcome them to come to us, we also reach out uh, and go to them. And my uh, decades of experience in the industry, uh, I think, have uh, created a lot of respect uh, from me to them and, uh, and uh, from them to me as well. So I think that uh, that's something that comes very naturally uh, to us. And it's important for lots of reasons. One, if we're collecting data uh, from the industry, um, which we're about to do, it's really important to get it right and to make sure that uh, we don't increase and potentially reduce the reporting burden. Uh, we want to make sure that the data we're collecting don't duplicate previous efforts, mm-hmm. that in fact they do fill in gaps. Uh, rather than uh, than duplicate. Um, and the statute has certain provisions that ensure that. But the engagement with industry early in the process is important to really get it right, to make sure that what we're collecting really does represent where the risks lie uh, in those parts of the financial system. So that's one thing that's, that's really important. It's also important because um, I alluded to market intelligence before. Uh, sometimes things happen and they become known in the uh, among market participants before they show up in the data uh, and they may be growing rapidly but they haven't really shown up in observable uh, data points um, and you know so we want to talk to people about where those those risks are um, we want to make sure that um, our analysis is transparent and is out there for the public to see so everything that we do gets uh, that can be put out, is put out on our on our website. And last but not least, um, you know, we wanted to get the industry to advise us and so we formed a financial research advisory committee. And there are 31 people on that committee and they're all very high-powered, world-class people and they're not shy about telling us what they think.
3: <laughs> well, I, in terms of that, um, cause I, I wanted to get to this anyway, but how do you interact with them when, they may not necessarily agree with, with what you're looking at or, or the approach that you're taking. Um, obviously, for certain aspects, whether it's uh, short-term wholesale funding or, or um, perhaps with you looking at alternatives to LIBOR and and the research on, on that um, benchmark, there may be differences of opinion of, of whether it's a benefit right. or a risk. Um, and. And for them to maybe think that what you produce is policy when it's actually not.
2: Right. So let me answer the first question. That's a really important question. Because uh, you know, my personal view is um, you, know, you find the truth not through immediate agreement on something, although that you may immediately agree. But more, you're more likely to find it through disagreement uh, mm-hmm. and through uh, controversy and discussion. And if people are willing to engage and they come to the discussion uh, with a willingness to learn, with a willingness to listen, and a willingness to be honest about their views, as our committee does and as we do, um, and we do it all in public, so it's completely transparent, <laughs> uh, then I, I think you, get, you start to get enlightenment out of uh, a process like that. So we're willing to take uh, their advice, but they understand also in offering it that it may be that for a variety of reasons we don't take their advice, and that's OK. Um, and they may learn something too. In fact, uh, one of our former members, uh, who was the vice chair of our initial vice chair of our advisory committee, uh, Don Cohn, is also a member of the financial policy committee at the Bank of England. And he liked our committee so much that he went to the Bank of England and said, "We've got to have an advisory committee because I learned so much from from this process." Um, but uh, you know so I think that's that's the philosophy that we use uh, in approaching the issue. As far as confusing what we do with with policymaking, um, you know I think that's an easy thing to conflate and we try to draw a bright line between what we do and policy decisions in a variety of ways and make that you know abundantly clear. Um, I, I you know it's not always uh, simple to do that, but I think it's important to do that because, Really, the integrity of our work hinges um, on our being uh, completely based on, on the facts, on analysis, uh, without having a particular policy to defend or, uh, or in mind when we start. Yeah.
3: Don't shoot the messenger. Sir. <laughs> yeah, <say>. look, <laughs>
2: our job is to ask hard questions. Yeah. And people might not like the answers, um, but that's our job.
3: Yeah. No, as a journalist, I can relate. We've so. we've done.
2: We've yeah, I'm sure you can. We've we've uh, published some things, and some friends of mine in the industry called me up and said, "Well, you must be doing it right because you managed to piss off everybody."
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Again, as a journalist, I can relate. Um, I just want to ask you because um, I think we do want to make sure there's time for some questions. Um, sort of looking back and and looking forward. Um, You've been in this job now for, for several years. You're the first and only uh, director of, of the OFR. Looking back, are there things that you wish you would have done differently or focused more on? Um, is, is there anything that you would uh, want to change? Or Because obviously, when you're the first one and <laughs> you're kind of it's a work in progress and sort of figuring out how, what your role is versus the regulators versus FSOC might have been, you know, sort of um, a bit daunting at times.
2: Yeah, well, how much time do you have? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, obviously, as you say, doing a startup in the government is not a simple thing and, and, uh, you know, it was a gleam in the eye when we started and uh, we've learned a lot uh, through the process. So sure, there are lots of things that I probably would have done differently knowing then what I know now. Uh, but you had to acquire the knowledge as you went and make mistakes and be willing to move on from, from, uh, from the mistakes. And I think we've learned from the mistakes. I think we're uh, you know hitting our stride and getting it right. Uh, and, but there's still a lot to do. Um, I would say that um, particularly in, um, in the area of data, where I've talked about some of the challenges to doing that work, uh, but that 's an area where you know we just have to redouble our efforts and make sure that uh, we get that done because without the facts it 's going to be hard to uh, to uh, to do the analysis to make the policy decisions much less to be transparent
3: sure and looking forward, I know in your opening remarks, you said that you think the system is more resilient, and obviously a lot of changes have been made to right. to make it so but um, Given sometimes people have short-term memories and the uh, pension for sort of complacency to start creeping in, um, you know, what are your biggest worries in terms of the resiliencies of the system? What are you sort of keeping your eye on? Is it shadow banking? Is it, you know, other sort of emerging threats, fintech, elsewhere?
2: You named a couple of them. <laughs> um, I talked about some of the macro risks coming from overseas that might spill over uh, onto our markets. Uh, That's clearly one. Uh, We haven't talked about cybersecurity, but when we think about threats that face individual institutions or the system, uh, that's pretty much at the top of the list. Uh, And uh, building resilience um, there is uh, still a challenge. Uh, I think people have done a lot, but there's more to do. Uh, And the industry, that's where a public private partnership is really important because industry has to take steps to uh, practice cyber hygiene as the professionals call it Um, and we have to make sure that the system as a whole has that resilience through information sharing through a set of common practices through making sure that um, you know we look at uh, the vulnerabilities wherever they may be i think that the uh, the events at SWIFT um, uh, a little less than a year ago are mm-hmm. evidence of that. Um, so that's those are some of the issues that we're looking at.
3: OK, great. Well, uh, I think we are now going to move to audience questions. I know you had your hand up first, so I will uh, let you start. And I don't know if there's a mic, or people should just, oh, sorry.
4: Thanks, Thanks, and uh, thanks to the Atlantic Council for uh, organizing this. Uh, yours is an important role. I'm Robert Shredder with uh, International Investor. And uh, I think our moderator has tried, but I'm going to try to pull you out a little bit further on uh, these areas of uh, finance, global finance, that, that you might still be concerned uh, our regulatory regulatory agencies are unable to really grasp. Shadow banking is just one of them. We see tremendous growth in private equity and trillions of dollars now now flowing through that uh, device. And in addition, we're seeing that the derivatives market is expanding very quickly beyond the borders of even our trusted partners in Europe. So it's moving uh, all parts of the world, the origination of derivatives as well as the counterparties and the collateral. Are you concerned that we're seeing uh, a smaller and smaller part of the overall picture? Trading platforms also are are springing up all over the world. So does it concern you that we're only able to measure uh, perhaps a minority of, of this financial activity?
2: Yeah, one of the things that we've written a lot about, not just recently, but over the past few years, is the fact that uh, as technology changes, as business models change, as regulatory changes uh, make one part of the financial system stronger, then there's a tendency for activity to migrate to other parts of the financial system. And some of the things you just mentioned um, relate to that. So if uh, we've made uh, financial institutions stronger by, Uh, raising capital requirements, which I talked about, by having increased liquidity requirements. That doesn't apply across the board. It applies to a subset of institutions in the financial system. And so activity tends to flow where uh, there's less regulation and maybe more opacity, maybe uh, less resilience uh, as well. Those are things that we're constantly looking at because we don't want to look where the puck has been. We want to look at where it's going. Um, And so if people are uh, less able, because it's less economic, to create leverage on the balance sheet, then they're probably going to use off the balance sheet or derivatives transactions uh, to do that. And those are the kinds of things that we need to monitor. Now, when it comes to derivatives, one of the things that was um, really important in financial regulation globally, not just in the United States, is that... Regulators sought to make and have achieved more transparency in derivatives markets by requiring that certain transactions be affected through what are called swap execution facilities, by making them report those transactions to swap data repositories. And the nice thing about those things was, at least in theory, they became um, high-quality, low-cost data collection points. We had some bumps along the way where the regulators didn't use the standards that should have been used in collection. So, we've been working with regulators for the past three years to try to fix those things. Um, and I'm pretty confident that now people get the idea that the use of data standards and reporting these volumes, large volumes of data, and I really mean large, uh, is extremely important because if you're going to aggregate them and compare them, um, and if you're going to analyze them, then you need to know precisely what they represent. So, that's one area, but there are There are others that are important as well.
4: Thank you. Uh, Neil Rowland, MLAX News. Hi, Neil. Uh, Although Gina asked three questions in one, I'm going to ask just two. Uh, First, (coughs) your term ends January 19th. What is your understanding, or your lawyer's understanding, of the president's <laughs> ability to remove you, his power to remove you?
2: I'm not a lawyer, Neil, so I, <laughs> you know, won't presume to answer that from a legal perspective. But you know, uh, I have no plans to leave, and uh, you know, uh, I haven't heard anything from the administration about asking me to leave. Um, and uh, you know, I do have a term that lasts until January first, 2019. So. Uh, given that they seem to share my views about financial stability, um, or at least some of them. you know, we're gonna, I'm looking forward to working with them. Good.
4: Thank you. Question two. In terms of your upcoming financial uh, products and instruments directory that you hope will help uh, regulators and companies and firms uh, aggregate risks, could you uh, take that out of the abstract a bit and give examples Of some of these products and instruments and how use of them might help uh, aggregate risk.
2: Did you have a particular example in mind? Do I? Yeah. Uh, No. Okay, well, I talked about derivatives markets and uh, swaps uh, in particular, but there are other examples. Um, We talked about the data that we seek to collect for um, bilateral repo and uh, securities lending. So I'll give you some data points that may help. Securities lending is an activity in which people who want to borrow securities for whatever reason, usually to take a short position against a a security, and they need to borrow it to do that uh, under law. Um, That activity amounts to roughly a $1 trillion, um, outstanding. Um, But there are $13 trillion of securities that can be lent. Um, and one of the reasons that there's a mismatch between those two things is that there's, compared to, pre, uh, to 10 years ago before the crisis, uh, the economics of securities lending haven't uh, been quite so profitable, in part because of where interest rates and other, other factors in financial markets are. Um, there's every chance that as those things change, securities lending activity will continue to pick up. And those transactions are highly granular in nature. So to understand the risk in that activity, we need to have better, more comprehensive data uh, about securities lending. Who are the lenders? Who are the borrowers? How they are reinvesting the collateral, if it's cash collateral, uh, in those transactions. Because if you engage in a securities lending transaction and you reinvest the cash collateral, um, and then stress hits the system, people might call back the securities, you're going to have to unwind that investment in the cash collateral. And if it's in illiquid securities, that might be difficult and that might contribute to more stress. So securities lending and repo transactions are closely related and we need to analyze them in that way. In order to analyze these granular data, we need to have data standards that, on a transaction by transaction level, reflect what's going on. But we also need to aggregate them so we have a a big picture view of what's going on. We need granular data. Uh, for a couple of important reasons, the first of which is we're interested in tail risk. And so in order to understand the tails of the distribution, not just the, the mean or mode of the distribution, we have to look at all the transactions uh, that are going on. But there's a second reason that's important, and that is because not everybody transacting in financial markets is identically alike. You know, look at the people in this room. Everyone is different, right? Multiply that by millions, and and billions in financial transactions, they're all different. And so we need to recognize that when we think about how we analyze what's going on in financial markets. that's hard, but it requires starting with very granular data. Dick. Uh,
0: Just to follow up. uh, on i suppose on the last question uh, you know you mentioned lehman brothers in your opening uh, remarks and you and you said at one point oh if only we had had in effect at that point these uh, uh, this legal uh, legal identity identity ident- index or whatever and the question, I guess, that I had, I, I suppose that what you're saying is that at least then institutions would know how exposed they were to Lehman Brothers because it would identify subsidiaries and that kind of thing. That's right. Do you do you really think at least then that would have changed the behavior of institutions that would have had any effect on what finally happened with Lehman Brothers?
2: That's a great question, Dick. I would say that it was necessary but not sufficient. Obviously. Then regulators and risk managers um, would have uh, had to employ that information in order to say, gee, I'm exposed to Lehman Brothers and maybe there's some issues there um, through some subsidiary that had no, nothing about Lehman in its name. Likewise, the regulators would have said, you know, we're observing these transactions and they trace back to the parent Lehman, whether it's Lehman London or Lehman New York or wherever, um, and we're seeing some things going on there. But uh, clearly, uh, it's just—it's a necessary tool, but it doesn't make sure that what you're constructing with that tool uh, is of high quality. You need judgment. You need experience. You need people who are really paying attention to what's going on. But if they had blinders on, then they, they couldn't do that.
3: Another question? Yes.
0: Hi, uh, Victoria Guido with Politico. I just wanted to ask on the the rulemaking that you've mentioned again on um, collecting data on bilater- bilateral repo and sec lending. Um, is that affected at all by the administration's regulatory freeze? Are you guys either formally or informally abiding by that at all?
2: Uh, the truth is, I don't know the answer to the question, um, so we'll find out. Uh, but uh, you know, it's our intention uh, to. Uh, That's the process by which we have to, through which we have to go collect the data. There has to be a rule, Um, and my suspicion is that um, you know if people realize that these things are important and that they are not adding to the regulatory burden, in fact, they are aimed at reducing it, then um, we'll have a good chance of doing it.
1: Thank you, Dr. Marner, uh, for being today with us. Um, how do you rank United States financial transparency compared with other markets, say, England, Euro area, Asian market, China? Do you see you at the benchmark, or there is, still a, or there is a gap with other uh, places? And the second related question, do you think uh, various degrees of transpa- financial transparency can affect decisions of market participants? To move from one place to the others, so in other words, prefer to go in places where there is less transparency uh, to do their business.
2: That's a, an interesting and, and good question or pair of questions. On the first, um, I don't think you can make any blanket statements because I think it depends on, excuse me, what you're talking about. So in some areas, the U.S. is is probably more advanced, In other areas, um, you know, Europe or Asia are more advanced. I'd say in general. Um, you know, with developing economies, with emerging market economies, um, it might surprise you to learn that some of them are actually quite advanced uh, in this regard and have done quite a lot uh, to make their systems uh, and their, their financial systems and their regulatory systems fairly transparent. And they're working hard at, uh, at doing that. In fact, we get inquiries uh, from foreign governments and foreign central banks uh, to help them uh, set up OFR-like structures, whether it's in the finance ministry or the central bank or some combination of the two, uh, and to do that work, because they recognize the benefits of, uh, of doing that. So there's no blanket answer. In some cases, the US is further ahead. In some cases, other, others are, uh, are further ahead. Um, with regard to your second question, I think the, uh, the answer is, you know, if I'm, a, uh, if I'm an investor, I probably like transparency. I want to know what I'm getting. Uh, if um, you know I'm engaged in other kinds of transactions, I may uh, you know I may not like transparency. I may like opacity. So I think it depends on where you sit. Um, and you know, uh, typically I think that if you have markets where there's less transparency, there may be you know more people may perceive there's more opportunity to uh, to, to profit. Uh, spreads may be wider between bid and ask, or uh, there may be other factors that uh, create more opportunities. Uh, but from a market functioning point of view, it certainly is my view that transparency is, is a big plus.
3: Great, are there any more? Ryan.
4: <laughs> Hi, Director Ryan Tracy with The Wall Street Journal. A Question on the legal entity
0: identifier. Um, you mentioned in your remarks that U.S. regulators need to do more in terms of uh, mandating the use of that. Is there more that OFR can do? And can you tell us um, you know, why you, to this point, haven't used the data collection authority that you have to, to spur that? I've heard you know, people suggest that there's a role
3: for the OFR in mandating uh, that, the use of LEI.
2: It's a good question, Ryan. Thank you for that. Um, I would say, uh, first of all, uh, you know, in our regulatory system, each uh, regulator uh, has a certain degree of independence and a th- certain degree of authority um, over the institutions and markets that they oversee and supervise, uh, and their data collection uh, authorities reflect those um, uh, those authorities as well, and so. Um, we don't have the authority to tell uh, others uh, not to do what they're doing. Uh, what we can do is we can uh, do and, um, uh, and we can specify the identifiers that they should be using, uh, but they are free to go about using the existing identifiers, if they have them, uh, that they're already using. So there's a little bit of ambiguity in the, um, in the law. But our data collection authority um, really is not really relevant for uh, for that. What we do in collecting data is we can require that anybody who uh, from whom we collect data can be compelled to use an LEI or other kinds of identifiers, an instrument identifier, and we will do that when we collect the repo and securities lending data and other data that that we collect. Um, so I think that. Um, you know, most of the regulators view that there are benefits and there are costs to any change, and that is true. There are benefits and, and costs both to making changes. Um, our point of view is that uh, there are enormous network benefits from uh, widespread adoption for a system like the LEI, um, and we can only realize that by making the adoption pretty widespread. Uh, And that's really the case for, uh, you know, for solving that collective action problem that that so far has uh, prevented widespread adoption.
3: Uh, I think we just have time for one more, in case, yes.
1: (laughs) So, Director, I know this is going to be a big hypothetical, but given if if there were to be another Lehman-type event today or in the near future, Um, How do you think it would play out given improvements in transparency and other changes that have happened in the market since? We talked at the start about the fact the financial system
2: is more resilient than in the past Um, and I think that's important because when shocks hit uh, it means the system is better able to withstand those shocks. Um, So the chance that we would have a a replay of something uh, like what we had in 2007 uh, through 2009 is less likely. And if we do get shocks, whatever they are, and we can't predict them, uh, then the chances are the system is going to be more resilient. However, uh, you know, no two crises are alike and no two shocks are alike. Uh, I talked about cybersecurity shocks. If we have a cybersecurity event that affects uh, the ability of financial firms to transact then, that could have broader repercussions for market liquidity. It could have broader repercussions for the ability of uh, firms to fund themselves um, and so on. And those are the kinds of things that we need to look out uh, for and uh, to try to anticipate where the weaknesses uh, are going to be. So I can't tell you in advance um, how things are going to play out. What I will tell you is that, Uh, We and and others in the regulatory community um, are trying to use what people call tabletop exercises in order to uh, play out scenarios and think about how uh, those shocks might spread and how the risks might spread. And That's been successful in at least brainstorming the way that these things might play out.
3: Great. Um, Well, thanks again to everyone for coming, and thank you to Director Berner.
2: Thank you.